everyone. Welcome to session 96 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Today, I have a special episode to share with you, and it's brought to you by the Mental Health Risk Retention Group and Negley Associates. MHRRG and Negley Associates provide liability insurance products for behavioral health care organizations, including professional and general liability, workers' comp, property insurance, and much, much more. So to learn more about what they have to offer, head on over to MHRRG.com. Okay, in today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Parks, who is the Medical Director of the National Council for Behavioral Health. He also holds the position of Distinguished Research Professor of Science at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Missouri in the Department of Psychiatry in Columbia. He also practices psychiatry on an outpatient basis at Family Health Center, a federally funded community health center established to expand services to uninsured and underinsured patients in central Missouri. The reason Dr. Parks is on the show with me today is that the interview I conducted with Dr. Merrill Winston on mass shootings way back in session 79 caught the attention of the National Council of Behavioral Health. It turns out that the Council's Medical Directors Institute has been working on a report titled Mass Violence in America, and they reached out to me to help share the findings of their research. The resulting report is almost 100 pages in length, and Dr. Parks shares some of its more pertinent findings with us today. In particular, we discuss how Dr. Parks became involved with this project, the difficulty of defining what constitutes a mass shooting, what motivates mass shooters, prevention strategies that aren't helpful, along with those that show promise, the role of threat assessment, the role of problem-solving courts, and perhaps most interesting to some, what individuals can do if they see someone behaving in a way that's worrying them. So I hope you get a lot out of this conversation. And again, I want to thank the folks at MHRRG and Negley Associates for helping to make this all happen. So without any further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Joe Parks. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Dr. Joe Parks, welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you, Matt. Well, I appreciate you making the time to do that. And uh, this is uh, one, mo- most of the time, uh, my listeners will know this already, but most of the time the guests on the show are other board certified behavior analysts. But uh, there have been times where we've brought in experts from different fields, different walks of life. Uh, this is one of them. So why don't you uh, start off by telling folks uh, what you do, and, and, and also tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work. Certainly. So I, I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, and I actually started my practice after training in emergency psychiatry. Uh, I would spend my evenings and nights in emergency rooms, and the police would, and ambulances would collect people and would assess and treat them. Uh, Currently, I'm medical director for the National Council for Behavioral Health. We're a nationwide organization that represents uh, treatment 
organizations, either hospitals or clinics or residential treatment facilities that treat either uh, mental illness or addiction or both. And this ranges from uh, clinics that just do addiction or just do mental illness all the way up to large multi-hospital healthcare systems that cover whole regions of one or two states. It's a very broad membership, over 3,100 nationally. We provide them with uh, technical assistance. We do advocacy, we do training. Uh, we uh, work in Washington, D.C., making sure their issues are heard and understood. Got it. And so what made you get into psychiatry in the first place? You know, when I went through medical school, uh, I got to the end and I felt I knew less about psychiatry than about most of the rest of medicine. I was impressed by the amount of mental illness I saw in general medicine and in surgery. And I, I thought I couldn't be a good doctor unless I learned more. I, I actually got better uh, grades in surgery than I did in psychiatry, but <laughs> I think I found it more interesting. I didn't want to stand in one place all the time. Surgeons have to stand in one place a lot. So was your original training in surgery itself, and then you switched, uh, or is it just part uh, of the, the rotation that you went through? Or No, the surgery part is just part of general medical education. You get some pediatrics, some internal medicine, some OBGYN, and just a very little psychiatry, and I, I wanted more. It was interesting. I see. Very, very cool. Uh, one of our previous guests, actually, um, was trained as a, as a uh, general practitioner. And as he was seeing patients, he discovered that he was more, I guess, uh, uh, interested and uh, became increasingly interested in talking with him about their, you know, kind of behavioral and mental health challenges. And he's now with a, a therapist. So I could, I, I've heard uh, uh, this this sort of thing before, and it's, a, it's an interesting kind of backstory there. So um, one of the things that uh, we're we're kind of convening to talk about is. Um, Shifting gears slightly here, Joe, is to talk about this uh, uh, report called Mass Violence in America. Um, and we've done uh, an episode in the past uh, on mass shootings, and I think there's been a handful of them since that. And that episode was only published uh, a few months ago, um, sadly. Um, so this is, uh, this is uh, unfortunately an experience that we're seeing more and more of. Uh, in our country, and we've seen it uh, overseas as well. Um, so I was wondering if you can start by talking about the uh, Medical Directors Institute report uh, and what its goals were and you know, how it was kind of pulled together, and then we can perhaps get into some finer details about some of the things that you learned from it. Sure. We, we decided this was a topic that was uh, really needed a thorough examination uh, and, a, a, and a public resource to uh, explain better to people what was going on and what might be done about it because the frequency and the uh, how often these incidents are happening is increasing. But also the public attention to it, the media coverage, the amount of time we spend talking about it is increasing even more. It's on people's minds uh, and we, we people are upset about it. They're scared. Uh, they're in some ways scared more than they need to be because uh, even though we hear about it all time on the news, these mass shooting deaths account for less than two-tenths of one percent of all gun deaths. You're uh, much more likely to get killed in your car than you are by a mass shooter. 
Uh, and we also saw a lot of misinformation about the degree to which mental illness was involved or a cause. It seems to be a two-way discussion. It's either too much guns or too many mentally ill. And it's a much more complicated problem than that. We tend to do these reports on issues that are pretty complicated and are really begging for uh, a nuanced discussion and then some specific things that might be done. So it seemed like you guys assembled kind of a, like a team to, to, to put this together. Can you talk about how the report was uh, generated, the types of research uh, that, you, that you pulled from, and, and, and just any other information about the process that would be uh, interesting to share? Sure. So one of the things I do at the National Council is uh, I run a group called the Medical Directors Institute. And that is a group of medical directors of uh, some of our member organizations nationally. And we are there to advise the board of directors and the National Council leadership on clinical aspects of the administrative policy and financial issues that the members face. So we're, we're kind of like the, uh, the clinical resource for them to inform their decision making. Uh, and we, we do, we've done a series of papers. We did one on psychiatric manpower shortage, one on medication adherence. This is our third on mass violence. And your listeners can find it on our webpage. If they go to National Council for Behavioral Health and go to Medical Director Institute, they can download any and all of this. The way we do these papers is it's not just a bunch of psychiatrists sitting around thinking about it. We make a diverse group of everybody in, who, who's some way involved. So for this panel, we uh, had some FBI agents advising us. We had a couple of judges uh, on the expert panel. We had some researchers uh, in the area of violence, in the area of mental illness, in the areas of guns. Uh, some people that have done research on mass violence in particular. We had some people that run treatment agencies because uh, we want to advise our members uh, what they might be able to do to assist their community. One reason we do these papers is something happens and you go to your local agency and say, my God, you know, what are you doing to prevent this in our community? And they, they need a resource to say what they can do, what they can't do, and what could uh, what is reasonable. Uh, we have, uh, on, on other papers, we've had payers from like managed care companies. We have family members. We had a family member of, uh, of a mass shooter uh, on, on this panel also. Uh, and this group then sets an outline of the issues we want to cover. We have a series of phone calls. We all contribute documents, published uh, research articles from the area that we're most expert on. We work up an outline of the report, and then we meet face-to-face for two days. And we go over uh, all the different issues on the background, all the different possible solutions. And then we develop a kind of a Chinese menu of possible solutions. Uh, Not all solutions work in every community or every agency, so we want to give a range of options. And we have recommendations for state and federal government, recommendations for treatment agencies, recommendations for communities, recommendations for schools. So our our view is this is a a complicated problem that's going to take a whole range of solutions. Just doing something about guns is not going to solve it. Just doing something about mental illness is not going to solve it. It's going to be kind of like highway safety. You're going to have to change a lot of things. You know, to get our traffic deaths down, we changed roadway design, car design, driver training, traffic laws, all kinds of stuff. Getting at mass violence is going to require everybody doing something. 
So we have a set of recommendations where whoever you are, there's something you could do that you could pick out. There's two or three things you say, ah, that's within my sphere of action control. I'll work on that. And our hope is that people will take a look at the report and choose something they can do and take a personal responsibility to make a difference. Wow, I love that highway safety analogy. I've never considered it from that angle. That's that's pretty neat. And for uh, those listeners who are interested in checking out this report or any of the other reports, I can link those things in the show notes for today's episode. Um, and I really would love to dig into some of those things that you uh, kind of foreshadowed there. But before we do so, I, I want to perhaps maybe establish some some definitions before moving forward. So, you know, the re- report is, uh, you know, references the term mass violence. We often hear the term mass shooting, etc. Um, I think we all kind of know it when we see it, but is there a working definition that's perhaps more concrete that, that you guys were using when you're formulating this report? I think the most difficult thing about the area currently is there is not a single broadly accepted definition. We looked at multiple studies. Those studies uh, all used uh, different definitions, somewhat different definitions of what mass violence was when they collected a series of incidents. They all used different definitions of what they meant by mental illness when they were opining whether or not mental illness was related or in what percentage. Most of them use uh, an event that results in three to four deaths. Some are three, some are four. Uh, there are sometimes some exclusions. Some, some excluded them if it occurred uh, uh, during a crime, you know, some, some crime to get economic advantage or some other thing. Some, some exclude if it was solely family members. Uh, some don't exclude either of those. Uh, some exclude it if, it if it appears to be purely political or ideological, and some don't. Uh, the, the definition of mental illness goes all the way from the uh, definition used for the no-fly list or the no-gun list, in which case maybe 4% of, per, of people doing mass violence would have hit that definition, up to the percentage of people that had evidence of emotional distress, which would have been about 68% of people. Well, you know, we're not going to call just emotional distress a mental illness, but you see the breath and it makes it confusing. One of our major recommendations is that we, we believe the federal government in some kind of collaboration, maybe between Department of Justice and the Center for Disease Controls, needs to come up with a standard federal definition of what a mass violence incident is and what they're going to call mental illness and then have mandated reporting like we have for infectious diseases. Uh, you know, if, if you or I were, were to get uh, Ebola, there's all kinds of mandated reporting. There'd be a standard investigation. It would go to the Ebola database at the CDC. So we know a lot more about the factors leading to Ebola than we know about mass violence because we're not serious. We, we think we have an epidemic, but we're not treating it like one because we haven't got standard data definitions and thorough systematic way of collecting information. Sounds like the same thing the uh, NTSB does with aircraft crashes as well, right? There's a... There's a re- an investigation and you know some sort of uh, concrete way of categorizing and sorting. So, um, Joe, if that's, you're to- that's a really good analogy, Matt. I'm going to start using that. We we need an NTSB for mass violence with the same level of detail and funding resource if we if we want to make a difference. Uh, uh, thanks. Um, so, you know, Joe, if you were to wave your magic wand and define this based off of the research that you and your colleagues did. 
what would you how, how would you define a, a mass violence or a mass shooting event and how would you distinguish that from other types of violent crime you know, I'm, I'm, I want to give this with the caveat is my expertise is uh, more in policy and administration. I'm not the researcher types. Sure, and they, sure. I won't hold you to it, but you're, 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 you're more well-read on this than the average person walking yeah. around on the street today. And, and so, I think I would do two levels. I would do three or more people actually died, and I'd do a second level of the person intended to kill multiple people. I think there's real value in tracking and gathering information about near misses. Uh, there was one incidence of a, a woman, and it's very unusual to have women involved in these, uh, who uh, shot about 40 rounds into a crowd at close range and only hit one person. She was a lousy shot. Thank goodness, huh? It's thank goodness, but you know, does that make her motivations of less interest to us? You know, right. It could have been very different, um, and I and I, I would include all causes of death. We uh, the, there are the most studies on shooting. It appears that in mass violence in general, that over ninety percent of it is with guns. There are there are some that involve uh, bombs. There are some that involve motor vehicles driving a vehicle into a crowd, but it appears that ninety percent of it is is guns. Uh, by the way, one surprising statistic we found is the majority are not assault weapons uh, they are they are automatic handguns and automatic rifles but they're not the full bore assault weapon mm -hmm. uh, they are something you can squeeze continuously and, and keep getting a bullet out right right um, you know one of the things that I think if I recall correctly you know they're they're you know some of these alternative forms of mass violence are you know perhaps um, uh, I don't have any hard stats to look at this, but I know that, that those things sometimes happen with you know terrorist incidents, particularly in Europe. I think there's been a few episodes where people have driven trucks into crowds of people, and um, um, and certainly there there are the the you know bombings and etc. But um, one um, so I was gonna I was gonna ask you about what surprised you, and that seems to about what came out of this research, and that seems like one finding, but. Um, one of the things I, I want to tackle before we get into some of those finer grain details is, uh, you know, when these events do happen, I, I, I want to talk more generally about the kind of motivation to do these things. So when these things happen, the, the, the question I think that the man on the street has or the person on the street has is like, it's just so senseless. And it's just like, why would someone do this? So, you know, based on the findings of the report and what you guys were able to learn doing this sort of work, um, were there common characteristics of the perpetrators of these events? Yes, the, 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 the biggest commonality is they're almost all men. It's very right. rare women. This is, this is a guy thing. Uh, and these are men that are, in general, feel that the world is unjust, they've been treated unjustly, or they strongly identify with another group they, they see as being treated unjustly. And it's a kind of, I'm not going to take it anymore uh, attitude. They tend, so they are resentful, they're they tend to be isolated, they have fewer social relations and social connections uh, than, than most people on average. Uh, and they do tend to have a, a fascination with guns and have, have a lot of interest and a lot of clicks on their web history uh, related to weapons. I see. It kind of reminds me, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie from, it's got to be 20 years old by now, Falling Down with Michael Douglas. 
if you haven't yes. seen, yeah, uh, when you said they're not not going to take it anymore, you know, that, uh, that was one of the first things that came to my mind when you said that. Um, and, and and so let's, um, so obviously they need to have access to, to, to firearms, particularly in those events in which that was the, the mode of, of, uh, of violence. Um, did anything come up as it relates to like how they acquire their their firearms and things like that that was common amongst some of these folks not not really the younger ones tended to use a family member's firearm uh some acquired the firearm not that long before a couple months before uh most uh it appears were acquired in a legal manner and not an illegal manner um but there, there wasn't a real strong, strong commonality with that. For 30 years, the Mental Health Risk Retention Group and Negley Associates have proudly served the unique needs of mental health centers, community mental health facilities, shelters, halfway houses, counseling centers, and substance abuse and addiction treatment centers, to name just a few. They specialize in meeting the needs of behavioral health care organizations to ensure they get the comprehensive liability insurance they need. The MHRRG and Negley Associates bring together best-in-class insurance experts to provide a broad array of customized coverages. Their team of distinguished attorneys and actuaries, reinsurance companies, and underwriting and claim managers have decades of insurance experience in the behavioral health care industry. With MHRRG and Negley behind you, you have the peace of mind to focus on running your organization and serving your clients knowing that they have you protected. So for more information, check out MHRRG.com, or better yet, call them today at 862-286-3517 to schedule a meeting and find out how they can work with you to create a specialized package that meets your organizational needs. I see. Uh, so let's let's turn to the area of the role of mental health. You kind of touched base on that earlier, but I want to circle back and, and spend a little bit more time on that. So what were some findings that you guys found as it relates to that? Because, you know, the, the colloquial thing to do perhaps is just to throw your hands up in the air and say, well, this just sounds crazy, you know, and, uh, you know, but uh, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that. And so uh, tell us a little bit about the mental health angle as it relates to the, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's sad that I'm about to use this term, the average mass shooter or the average mass, yeah. you know, uh, perpetrator of violence. Yeah. So, uh, on, uh, you know, on average, uh, on any given day, about uh, about 19 percent of people in the country will be having experiencing a mental illness. That's the base prevalence of any mental illness across the whole country is around 19 percent. So if mental illness made no difference whatsoever, one way or another, better or worse, regarding mass violence, you would expect about 19 percent of people um who do mass violence to have a mental illness. It's just like the percentage of people that have blonde hair or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, like an unrelated thing. Um, it, it, when looking at the studies that look for, that look for fairly solid signs of mental illness, more than just emotional distress, either a prior diagnosis or a very clear indication that somebody, uh, that multiple people saw and not a speculation, it comes in around 25 to 33 percent 
So you compare that against the 19% and you conclude that it is somewhat increased from the general population, but it's not present in the majority. It's, it's you know, it's under, it's well under 50%. The second question you have to consider is how much is the causative? Because you can have, you, you can have, uh, associate things, but not have one cause the other. And it, it actually differs by the kind of mental illness. It's, uh, there's a, there are occasional cases of people that are hearing voices telling them to shoot others. That's pretty direct causation. You also have cases of people that had an anxiety disorder or were depressed. That's a little dicier. How does being anxious make you go out and kill people? If anything, it makes you want to stay away from other people. So I think the hardest thing in looking at the reports of mental illness is also figuring out was there a plausible causative link? And that's again where we need that NTSB investigative approach afterwards to answer that question. We simply don't have the data. Uh, but it does appear there is uh, that compared to mental illness in the general population, there is a moderately higher rate of mental illness in uh, perpetrators of mass violence, but it is not the cause in the majority. And I think I recall somewhere, um, and I think you touched on this briefly earlier, but I think I recall somewhere in the report that says that there's usually some sort of recent incident in their life, that uh, negative incident, like getting fired or you know uh, getting rejected by a loved one or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's often something along the line of that last injustice, the straw that broke the camel's back. These are people that feel they've been done wrong in many ways over a wrong period of time. And there usually is one final incident uh, involving usually a loved one or work uh, that that appears to have been the stressor or trigger that decided that made them decide to take action. Now that said, we have many men in this country uh, who are angry and feel life has been unfair to them and that, you know, they, they haven't had the kind of uh, life that they wanted and have angry fantasies that never do any such thing. Uh, so, you know, if we start looking for everybody that fits that profile, the vast majority, we're never going to do anything. Uh, it actually, the more helpful thing is they actually, most, most people that perpetrate mass violence have usually mentioned something about their plan to somebody. So the helpful thing would be uh, the public more sensitive to saying, you know, if I hear somebody that didn't used to talk about he's going to kill somebody over this, that he's gonna, I need to go talk to somebody. So do they know to do that? Is there somebody there they can talk to? And whoever they're talked to, do they have uh, skills and resources to go and investigate and make a difference and do interventions? And that's where the rest of our report recommendations go. I see. So... Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, people get fired every day. Uh, people break up with, you know, romantic partners every day and all these other types of, you know, uh, negative events occur. And most people obviously don't take this course of action, this destructive course of action. Um, so it sounds like there's some sort of perhaps combination of events. You know, you have to have an access to, you know, the, the means of carrying out this and a firearm of some sort or firearms. Um, possibly some sort of precipitating trigger, uh, and then the um, um, you know the willingness to carry it out, uh, and and so forth. Um, uh, what is is there a way to like? So um, I'm intrigued by the the idea of of that 
a lot of these perpetrators tell people about their plans. Uh, it almost seems kind of counterintuitive if uh, that you know if someone was interested in carrying something like this out. Why you know why would they talk about it? Um, is there did, were you able to kind of glean any rationale behind this pattern in, in the research that was done? Uh, we don't have any research that looks at that in a serious, systematic way. Uh, speculating as a psychiatrist, uh, the, these are people that just can't hold it together anymore. Otherwise, you know, they, they, they've had angry, resentful thoughts for a long time, uh, and, and they can't hold it inside. And they start, they may have started uh, writing privately for themselves. Next, they start writing on the internet. Uh, next, they start talking to people around them. Uh, this is just somebody that uh, is so upset and so angry at their situation, they can't hold it inside anymore. I see. I see. Um, I, I want to I talk about the concept of, you know, kind of see something, say something as it relates to those kind of, you know, uh, telegraphed messages. Uh, but I, I, another thought occurred to me, and I want to ask this question before getting to that, and that's this. Um, do we have any tracking you mentioned the uh the the near misses if you will you know and you see reports about this in the newspaper from time to time where a potential mass shooting was 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 stopped because of that event mm-hmm. you know someone told a friend at school someone told a colleague or whatever they called the authorities the uh, potential perpetrator was you know, there was some sort of intervention that resulted in a um uh, a prevention of that event. Uh, do we have any good ways, uh, mechanisms for tracking those events as well? You know, because it's one of those things. It's like it's kind of like terrorism. You don't you don't really get any information on like all the stuff that stopped. You know, and and yes. and there's you know and you know you have to assume that our law enforcement and security apparatus is you know is stopping things every day, and we never ever hear about it. We only hear about you know, when, when something isn't prevented. Uh, is there any way of looking at, you know, what's going right as it re- relates to these events that, that are headed off at the pass? Yeah, I think I, I think that uh, looking at interventions where somebody had a lot of risk factors and appeared to be on a growing trajectory of getting, uh, of getting closer to acting is a good metric to look at. What we'll never know is how many people ultimately would have acted. Uh, you know, we can we see we hear reports of somebody that was getting guns was writing about shooting people. A bunch of people do that, and they'll never shoot anybody. They'll do that for a while, and then their life will change. Something will get better. They might get a girlfriend. They might get a new job. Uh, their view of life will change, and it'll peter out and go on another trajectory. And we don't see all the ones that got up. Nobody did an intervention. But then the trajectory went back down and, and, and they backed off. It's kind of similar to uh, suicide. The lifetime prevalence of suicidal ideation of thinking about killing yourself, 60% of the general population will say that they've seriously considered suicide at some point during their life. Only 1% actually die due to suicide. So, that, you know, that's a 60 to 1. That's 59 people that didn't end up with the undesired outcome. I think this mass violence and killing others is going to be kind of a similar picture. There's a lot more people that think about it and maybe even do some preparation that never act even without an intervention. But I think doing an intervention will decrease the numbers that do act. So I think see one, see something, say something 
and and then doing a follow-up investigation and figuring out if they're on a trajectory to to actually acting and intervening uh, is an important approach okay all right so i want to talk about more stuff that well, we can do to prevent um these events but one of the things i thought was interesting in the report is that you you mentioned and i don't want to put words in your mouth um but I think there were some practices that are currently being uh, thrown around uh, or used in certain communities that, that perhaps are unhelpful. I'm thinking of things like um, shooting shooter drills and things like that. Can you talk about, uh, before we talk about what we should do, uh, perhaps there, it, it might be helpful to talk about some of the things we should perhaps spend less time on or stop doing or refrain from, from putting into practice. Yeah, because those are things that eat up resources that could be spent to better effect. We only have so much energy, time, and money to to spend on working on this, and if we spend it on the wrong thing, we're losing an opportunity. Uh, we we do. Uh, there's no evidence that realistic shooter drills help uh, prevent mass violence. Uh, and there's significant concern that they're traumatizing to the children, that they make children more depressed, more anxious, more fearful. Uh, there's no reason to do a drill with any more drama than you do a fire drill. And, you know, when we do a fire drill in the school, we're not blowing smoke down the highway. We're not having fake flames outside the window. We're, you know, we're not having kids with fake burns painted on them laying around or running out the door. Uh, shooter drills uh, are not in and of themselves bad, but they shouldn't be done with any more drama than your current tornado drill or your current fire drill is done in a school. Uh, the other thing uh, is uh, spending a lot of money hardening schools, putting in medical metal detectors, putting in bulletproof glass, uh, making uh, a school feel like a bunker or like a prison uh, has negative consequences. It is it, it adds to an atmosphere of, of fear and alienation. Uh, you're actually more likely to get shot in a restaurant than in a school. So why aren't we putting medical director, medical metal detectors uh, in restaurants? Because statistics would show I'm more likely to get shot there than at school. Um, the the uh, what would help better would be uh, on having threat uh, risk threat assessment and management teams having a trained group in the school uh, that students could go to when they're worried about someone who would then follow up with that student, figure out and their family, and figure out if they're on a trajectory of getting more violent or looking more likely to be violent. It, it would be on uh, programs that get uh, the kids more connected to each other as opposed to less connected. The zero tolerance can be problematic because, you know, these are acts that occur when people are isolated. Uh, so if you have someone that's already angry and not connected to their peer group and we kick them out of school, indefinitely that's going to make them more resentful and more isolated it's arguably in the long term going to increase the likelihood um, so those are some of the things in schools we feel we, we feel are not particularly helpful that, that uh, last th point joe if i can just uh, step yeah. in here for a second that's got to be pretty hard that's got to be a hard pill for someone to swallow uh, especially if they're in a school setting uh and you know one um you know it, it can be counterintuitive Right, because you want you know if this if if a student is manifesting this threat, you know the it, it would be, uh, you know perhaps a logical at least in the upfront sense type of intervention would be to you know put the student in some sort of alternative placement or program or something along those lines. Um, have you have you with that in 
with that recommendation in particular, have you received any pushback on that from people who in those communities are saying, hey, you know, we have this person that we perceive as a, as, as a somewhat immediate threat here, uh, mm. and, and yet we don't, you know, we're being told not to, you know, move them to a different setting, whether that's an alternative school, you know, whether it's expulsion, I don't know. I'm sure that the, the, the options run the gamut, but what, what would well, you say to someone, you know, who, who would be, have some resistance to that recommendation in particular? In most cases, it's sending the kid home. You know, it's not, it's not having some therapeutic intensive intervention, separate school system, those are in general not available. What it usually, zero tolerance means usually the kid is suspended and sent home. And it's up to the family to figure out how to get the kid educated. Um, and, and we do get pushback. There are people that say, you know, this shouldn't be my problem. This is somebody else's problem. Get this away from my kid. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Well, that's not a real community-oriented approach. I mean, we don't, we're not going to be safe by just pushing people away. Uh, people need to be engaged and brought in and worked with, uh, especially over the long term. It may make the school safer for a couple weeks, but, you know, that, that person's now going to be more alienated, more angry, and they could be put on a different path. And the majority of kids you do zero tolerance with were never going to hurt anybody anyway. They were talking. Now, how can you tell which one will and which one don't? We can't always. But, you know, how many are you willing to harm to uh, to protect, the, you know, to save yourself from the one that was going to do something? And what else can we do with that one or with that whole group that would help them all and keep us safe? Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, what? Uh, yeah. So what are some other uh, uh, ways to prevent or, or, and or intervene with, uh, with, with someone, especially if they're showing signs that they may be contemplating carrying out something like this? Um, and I think there's some uh, interesting stuff in the report about various types of, you know, I think what you refer to as problem-solving courts. That, that's an area that I'm particularly interested in. So if you can talk about that for a minute, and, and also I think that term problem-solving court, it might be new for many listeners. So you can just take a second to kind of describe what that is as well. I think that would be helpful. Sure. So this goes to the subset of, uh, of people that do have a mental illness or a uh, drug problem appears to be part of what's making them more dangerous or making them threaten or consider violence towards other that 20 that one third to 25 percent uh, these are courts that uh, where the judges uh, have had some training and have an interest in uh, in working with people with a substance use disorder uh, or uh, or with mental illness, and they commonly will give people order treatment or make it a condition of probation. Um, so, you know, if you go to your treatment program three times a week and I get good reports from your therapist or counselor, uh, then you won't go to jail. But if you stop taking your medication or stop showing up to treatment, uh, then you're going to go to jail. So it, it makes engagement in the treatment that's likely to relieve their condition basically a condition of staying out of jail. And these are very successful. Uh, they're more successful than uh, mandatory civil outpatient probate. That's where somebody isn't charged, uh, but in, instead they're ordered in a civil manner. Like it's, it's like you're ordered to the hospital, it'll take you, you can be ordered to outpatient treatment, but how do you enforce that? You know what, the patient says, yeah, 
not interested, not going to do it. Uh, it's it's uh, so problem solving courts though also have to have access to treatment resources. There have to be agencies that treat substance use disorder and have funding to do it. Agencies that uh, clinics that treat mental illness, and that's why one of our other recommendations is uh, expansion of certified community behavioral health centers. This is a new national model. These are uh, treatment healthcare organizations that have a standard menu of services for treating addiction and for treating mental illness. Uh, they have to offer this broad array of services. They have to have uh, prompt access. You, can't, you don't get put on a waiting list for weeks at a time. They have to have extended access into the evenings and weekends. They have to have 24 uh, hour a day, seven day a week crisis uh, capability. So if you're gonna have a problem solving court, that court has to have a resource that it can they can provide the treatment that it requires. So one of, in addition to the problem solving courts, you need the certified community behavioral health centers. What makes it possible for them to provide these treatments is that their rates are set based on their actual costs of providing care. Uh, in much of the country, the rates paid for treating mental illness and addiction are less than the actual cost of care, which is why many of your listeners can't get in anywhere, get these month long waiting lists. I see, okay. Um, so what are the, take me through a, a scenario where, you know, let's say, let's say I'm a school principal or let's say I'm a business owner and I have employees and I'm seeing someone show some of these signs. Um, what, what's, what's the, you know, they're, they're seeming disaffected. They're seem they're, they're seeming isolated. They're making, you know, um, comments about, or we're, we're getting information that they're making comments about hurting other people. Um, and we have a pretty good idea that they might have access to the means to, to carrying that out. Mm -hmm. What's what's the first phone call I should make? Who who do I reach out to? Well, in in our future ideal world, where the recommendations followed, uh, there would be either in that business or available in that business community access to a threat assessment and management team. Let's say it's a small business, so it's done through uh, the local chamber of commerce. This would be a group of people where some of them, uh, uh, there would be an HR expert, a human resource person that knew about employment rights and prerogatives. There'd be a civil rights lawyer, there'd be a criminal lawyer, there'd be a law enforcement, a police officer, and there'd be a behavioral health professional, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, and they would go to this group and they'd say, we're worried about John. John seems different and it's not right. And this group would start by interviewing all the people around John. What's going on? What changes have you noticed? They'd discuss it among themselves. They'd decide if it was at a point where they needed to talk to John directly and what they needed to say. Uh, at, at that point, let's. Uh, another recommendation is that all states should have extreme risk protection orders. This is when uh, a per, any citizen can go to a court and if they convince the judge that the person's likely to be dangerous, the judge can order a temporary removal of their firearms. This is common practice nationally in domestic violence. Right. You know, if I were to threaten, if I were to start talking about shooting my wife, in most places, some police officer would show up and want to take my guns until we resolved our domestic problems. Uh, and so extreme risk protection orders is expanding the standard process that has due process. I get my gun back eventually when I settle down, uh, but it, it would extend it to threatening to shoot people other than your spouse, 
which seems pretty reasonable to us. So maybe this, you know, the threat assessment team has now interviewed several coworkers, family members, uh, some people around the neighborhood. They've said, yeah, you know, John's right up on edge and we're going to go talk to him. But, you know, the first stage, we're going to go to the judge. The judge says, yeah, you know, let's temporarily remove John's gun. So the police would show up ready uh, and, and, and take his guns, and then they would have whatever interview and questioning they needed to have with John. Let's say they find out that they think he does have a mental illness, that he's having uh, some problems with sleep, that he's hearing voices or something. Uh, they, they could then either, if he'd actually threatened somebody, that's breaking the law, and he could go to the treatment-solving court and be ordered into treatment, or he could be offered treatment as a way to get his gun back. Uh, if he goes to the mental health center and to the certified community behavioral health center and, and makes use of the services there. Uh, but what, what a threat assessment team does is they look at a person's trajectory over time. Is this a person that seems to be building up closer and closer to action? Are they leveling off and they've hold steady or are they where we want them and they seem to be moving further away from action and calming down? And it's that ongoing investigative approach and it's not just medical, it's legal, it's law enforcement, it's human resources, and it is behavioral health, but it's not just behavioral health. I see. Okay. Um, what um, are there other uh, recommendations? I know that it's a, the report's almost 100 pages, so I know you can't cite a chapter and verse yeah. here, this, this podcast uh, episode. Uh, but is there another recommendation or two that you'd want the listeners to know about that? Uh, that you feel is important? Well, for your list, and you know, it was written primarily for a behavioral health audience. It's written for our members. So we do go at length on what can be done to identify and intervene with the 25% to one third where mental illness or an addiction is an issue. Uh, and the, uh, the other recommendations we have are that uh, the communities get training in mental health first aid, this is a eight-hour training course for anybody in the general public to identify when somebody is distressed due to uh, a mental illness or an addiction problem to train them in role-playing. I mean, people actually do the little interviews with each other in the training to be comfortable talking, striking up a conversation with that person and the things to say to reassure them and encourage them to get professional help. It is the behavioral health version of Red Cross First Aid. It's available nationwide. We've trained over three million people nationwide. And it is a great early warning, early intervention uh, to try and help people, uh, hopefully long before they think of hurting themselves or anybody else. Uh, we do recommend the funding for community behavioral, certified community behavioral health centers. And we, uh, we have recommendations for healthcare clinicians in general to have gun safety discussions with their patients that are sounding like they're angry and unhappy and looking frustrated and say, well, do you have a gun? Are you thinking about using it? Uh, how close are you to actually doing that? What would it take? So, you know, to have clinicians trained to have, be comfortable. Uh, many healthcare professionals would rather talk to you about your sex life than about your gun. It just seems. <laughs> that, yeah. I'm sorry to laugh at such a serious topic, but it's uh, that there's a little, that, that, that that's a, it's almost absurd, but uh, I'm sure it's nonetheless true. So, uh, it's kind of where we are in America right now. Oh, man. Um, and we need to get over it. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, wow. Um, where, where uh, is, 
I, I know I'll get emails from listeners saying this this mental health first aid sounds awesome. Uh, where where does this training usually take place? So if someone's interested in learning more about that and getting trained in mental health first aid, um, where are these uh, trainings generally taking place? Uh, you know, if you, uh, you you can find it on our website, and we can find a trainer in your area. Uh, there are trainers across the nation available. It can be put together by a church. It can be done through a school. It can be done through a business. Uh, we have large businesses that are training their employees. Uh, we we uh, have uh, broad uptake. A lot of schools are doing this. Uh, and so just go to our website put in National Council Behavioral Health, Mental Health First Aid, and you will find a page where you can you can find a trainer near you. All right, cool. And I will put a link to that in the show notes of this episode so it's uh, convenient for folks to find. So, um, Dr. Parks, this has been a, a very informative conversation. So I, I, I want to, uh, I guess, uh, cap it with this, this final question here. And, you know, um, what, you know, I, I think... When we talk about mass violence and mass shootings and things like that, you know, the, some of these interventions like, you know, establishing access to behavioral health or, you know, doing this about access to guns or whatever, these are kind of like policy and organizational system, you know, systems level interventions. Um, but I'm, uh, if you have advice for like what an individual can do, because I think sometimes we, we, when we see these, these, systems level interventions the individual can feel kind of powerless if they're not in a policy making role or a major decision making role so um, what, what advice would you have for someone who wants to kind of make an individual difference as it relates to improving this very very serious problem get your training in mental health first aid if you're worried about the mental illness aspect number two is uh, do the if you hear something say something if you if you have a friend or acquaintance that's uh, making you nervous that's talking about violence and angry in a way they weren't before go talk to your human resources if it's at work uh, go you know go talk to the police if it's around the community uh, Talk to their family members if you can, but don't just bear the anxiety by yourself and tell the person, you know, yeah, dude, I'm worried about you. You know, you're, you're kind of scaring me. And well, would you really do anything like that? What's going on here? I see. All right. Um, well, I think that's uh, I think that's it for for today's show. So, uh, Dr. Joe Parks, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been again a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and uh, thanks to your listeners for being interested. It's an important topic. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.